0: Early morning, fog is lifting. She's in a rowboat on a lake. She is dreaming. She is drifting. Never been so wide awake.
1: Hello and welcome to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet. This is Corinne Modokitis, and you can call me Corinne. I'm a certified life and weight loss coach along with being a Daring Way facilitator. As the host of this show, I've done over 450 interviews since 2006, and I host this show for you. I see too many people who define themselves by the circumstances in their life and the difficulties they face. I have the show for you so you can see what is possible in your life. You see, I believe there are many ways to live life. I believe there are many journeys for us to take. We can learn from others to see what is possible for ourselves. I believe there are possibilities for all of us. While you may believe successful people don't have difficult situations, this show is here to set you straight. Because we all have stumbled, lost our way, or only saw closed doors. And in this podcast, you will find out that this stumbling, falling down, and getting your butt kicked is actually the true pathway to success when you are willing to be vulnerable and rise back up in your life. Instead of accepting your life as good as it gets, you can find out here how others have created great lives so you can too. And when ordinary people share their authentic backstage truth behind their successes, The doors of possibility open for all of us. Many years ago, I came across a lady who had not graduated from college until she was almost 30 years old. I was intrigued. By the time I'd found her, she was a college professor and on the verge of changing millions of people's lives. Little did we know. Today, this woman, Brene Brown, who's a university professor and a researcher, is also now a New York Times bestselling author, Famous TED speaker with over 25 million views and the CEO of The Daring Way. Today, I'm bringing back one of the three interviews I've done with Brene Brown to get you ready for her upcoming book, Rising Strong, which comes out August 25th, 2015. In last week's podcast, I showcased my interview with Brene and our conversation about worthiness. In this podcast, I'm sharing the first interview we ever did together. We were supposed to talk about letting go of perfection, and quite honestly, we had a bit to do ourselves to get through this interview. After many years of controlling, I finally got to a place in the studio where I decided to let the guest ring in. Brene was one of those guests. So I waited and waited and waited. Finally, two minutes before we were going live, on the air, I called her. She asked if we could move our interview back by 10 minutes as she had workers coming to the house. I explained we were actually live radio. She quickly said she would figure something out and call me back on the studio line. We are both a little adrenaline rushing. In 60 seconds, she called me back and she was in her car to avoid the noise in her house. And over the course of the next hour, she was in her car under her daughter's bed, and eventually in her closet. For me, on the other side of the mic, I was a bit distraught and forgot to turn my mic on. And when I did my introduction for her, yes, you can only imagine all the listeners who heard dead air for about two and a half minutes. They were freaking out. Was it their connection? Was something wrong on their end? Eventually, we all got on the air together and started with letting go of perfection, the topic that we're supposed to talk about in this interview, until I asked her about her research. And the question was about the correlation of loving ourselves and our ability to love others. Listen to that part of the interview. It's amazing. I'll circle back afterwards and tell you more about the behind the scenes of my first interview with Brene. Thanks so much for listening
0: to be with
1: you. It's it's been a pleasure to have you. So um, let's talk about, there was something that you put in your book, uh, The Gifts of Imperfection, where you talk about we can only love others as much as we love ourselves. Can you? That was something, I I posted that up on my Facebook wall and it was an interesting discussion that that came about. Can you talk about, give a little bit of background to that statement? Yeah,
0: and I got to tell you that it's like one of the things that has Like you talk about the discussion on your Facebook page, Um, it's, I never, whenever I say it, there's always a little bit of of controversy and really, I think, important debate. I, one of the things that happened as I started doing this research, um, one of the very first things that started to emerge was this idea that I don't know that we can give people what we don't have. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know that, you know, as a parent, I can give my child a sense of self-worth that I don't have. I don't know if, as a partner, I can give my husband kind of uh, the love and compassion that he needs if I can't give it to myself. And so it's been this ongoing kind of unraveling, for me personally, the research has, about what I thought to be true. Because for me, I guess I always thought that it was very possible for me to love my children especially more than I loved myself, to look at my mm-hmm. children and see beauty and to see tenderness in them in ways that I probably couldn't see it in myself. And so I think I think we really, the bottom line is I don't think we can give people what we don't have.
1: And then, so what about, because that was the common thing um, that was posted on my Facebook wall when I posted that up there was, well, of course, I can love my children more than I love myself.
0: Right. Okay. So I believe that too.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But as I got into the research, especially the last three years, I've really been focusing on a lot of parenting research, a lot of, um, when I meet adults who really engage with the world from a place of worthiness, and they talk about the way they were raised, and they talk about what they saw in their their childhood growing up, how they were parented. One of the things that really emerged for me as powerful is that they learned... I think they learned compassion not by... The most profound teacher was not how they were treated by their parents, but by how they saw their parents treat themselves. Wow. So, and you know, and let me tell you something. This was, I, you know, anyone who's read The Gift of Imperfection knows that this was the central idea that sparked a huge personal breakdown for me. Mm-hmm. Um, this idea that we can't give people what we don't have, because it, as a parent, it just... I came kind of unglued. I just thought, Are you telling me that I know all the right things to do? I know all the right things to say. I know how to cultivate worthiness and self-acceptance in my children. And that does not matter as much as my ability to love and accept myself. That just sucks.
1: (laughs) I understand it intellectually.
0: (laughs) Right. It just sucks. And so I, I didn't really believe it until, let me tell you, that I have a daughter that is in middle school now. And what I'm seeing is that that this argument that we can only love the other people as much as we love ourselves is becoming more real to me as she's grappling with issues that are very familiar and hard for me personally. Mm-hmm. When she comes home and tells stories um, what she taps into is the seventh grader that lives inside of me that's sweaty palms with a cafeteria, you know, tray and has nowhere to sit. Mm-hmm. And so my ability to be gentle with her is really the, prere- the prerequisite for that is my ability to be gentle with myself about this. And so I absolutely believe that. Love, you know that our self-love can limit the amount of love that we can give to other people.
1: So, can you say that more? Because when so when she comes home with a seventh grade issue, and you needing to be more gentle with yourself, is that your seventh grader self?
0: Yeah, because I mean, you know, it's like when our kids do something funny and awkward and goofy and really vulnerable, and they're three or four. We look at them and we say, God, I think I can love them more than I love myself because I'm not so in love with my vulnerable, goofy, awkward self, but I really love that in my three year old. Mm-hmm. But then when your three year old turns into your 13 year old and they do something goofy and awkward and uncool, that looks a whole lot like that's starting to look like us, are starting to look like our partners. And then all of a sudden, how we care about ourselves and what we think about ourselves and how we love ourselves really starts to matter in the way we interact with our child about those behaviors. You know, when Ellen comes home and says, I'll make something up. Um, it's one of the things I've really tried to do since she's been in middle school, I <laughs> don't tell her stories unless I met them with her first. Um, because, you know, these are her stories. Yes. But, um, if Ellen came home and said, um, I said something at school today and everybody laughed at me, Mm-hmm and she's five and i said well that's not nice to laugh at people and tell me what you said i really want to hear what you said and i love you and i think you're amazing when she comes home and she's you know fourteen or fifteen and says "Man, i said something in school that everybody laughed at me our tendency is that strikes fear in our hearts because they're getting closer to us and that awkwardness is not childlike anymore and we're like well what did you say that was a super stupid thing to say why'd you say that be cool you know, because it starts to get in our own stuff. And I think in the end, if we don't, I mean, I will give you an actual example. I'm trying to make it a little bit more concrete. Um, the first day of school, or the first, I guess, two weeks of school, and again, first years of middle school for us, because in Texas it's 6, 7, and 8, is middle school. Um, Ellen lost her lunchbox, her English book, her, you know, her, her notebook, her spiral, um, her swim team for her swim team suit for swim team. You know, it's like we were kept losing everything. And I think had I not done this work, my natural reaction would be, Ellen, keep up with your stuff. Mm-hmm. This is ridiculous. You've lost five things in five days. But I think what I was able to do is to sit down with her and say, you know what? And she was like, you know, she's a very apologetic. She's like, I can't believe I'm doing this. I don't know what's wrong with me. And I said, you know what? When I get really stressed out, family stuff is going on or work stuff is going on, the first thing I do is start losing my keys. I said, I totally get it. And I think we're in a big transition and this is big for you, this is big for me. I'm not I don't know how to be a middle school mom yet. Your dad doesn't know how to do this yet. You don't know how to do it. We just need to be really kind and gentle with each other and give ourselves permission to screw up a little bit because we we're we're kind of overwhelmed. Mm-hmm You know, and I think if I didn't have tolerance for who I am when I'm overwhelmed, I can't extend that to her.
1: Uh Does that make sense? It makes total sense. And that was a great example of, you know, putting the idea and showing a story. And that reminds me of in your book, The Gift of Imperfection, where you talk about how um, with shame, you know, shame loves secrecy. And... You talk about the things not to do, like the one-upmanship. Oh, you did this. Or just like you would, your previous example, right, was you would have just said, you, you can't fall behind. Right. And, and then all that she's going to want to do is continue to hide her shame now from you, too, in her life. But, you, right.
0: but Right. Especially if I would have said something like, and let me tell you, I'm hardwired without being mindful and having done this kind of work. I could have easily said, Ellen, what do you think your teachers are going to think of you Mm -hmm. when it's the first week of school and you've already lost your book? Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because that's what we know. We do that, right? that's
0: what we know, and that's what we do to ourselves. So it goes back to this idea, if that's the way I talk to myself, if I walk into a meeting and I forgot something that's important and I berate myself and shame myself and go, God, I'm such an idiot, I'm such an asshole, you know, God... Then if that's how I treat myself, by extension, that's how I'm going to treat the other people around me.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and isn't it also because when they're little kids, they belong because they're just cute and darling. But then right. when we go to junior high, we're going, oh my gosh, they're not going to belong, and it triggers all our stuff from when we were in seventh grade. Oh my god,
0: yes. Because I mean, that's really what I said. You know what I said earlier, and I probably didn't say it very well. Is the hardest thing about. Parenting a middle school or high school student is that we all have a scared, insecure middle school student inside of us.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. I don't care, you know, I'm 45. That girl's still there. You know, I went to a blogging conference a couple of months ago and I wasn't with anyone. And because I I just went to go do a keynote, but I thought I'm going to go to some of these breakout sessions, they are so interesting. And then there was lunch and I'm like, oh my God, I don't know anybody. And then, you know, I had my food from the buffet, and I'm walking around, and there was the cool, beautiful girl table, and then there was the, you know, intellectual table, and there was the, you know, let your freak flag fly table. Um, of course, I gravitated right to the freak flag fly table. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and so, that still exists. Mhm. And it's so... Still, it's still our world, you know? Well, and we are hardwired for belonging. This is not negotiable.
1: Yeah, it's that we want that belonging, and so we're trying to teach our kids, okay, you can't do that because you will not belong in junior high if you do this, and we don't want you to go through pain and suffering. So what do you say to that, Brené, when we have parents and ourselves that don't want our kids to go through pain and suffering?
0: Well, I don't think any of us want that. I mean, I think that I do believe, I mean, honestly, I have to tell you that one of the other big huge paradigm shifters for me in this research was how much belonging matters, how we need a tribe. Mm-hmm. We need to be a part of something bigger than us. And the thing that, you know, how we, we open this conversation with, we can't love anyone more than we love ourselves. I also believe that we cannot cultivate a sense of belonging that's any greater than our sense of self-worth. You know, One of the things that was shocking to me is to find out, and, you know, as I was coding the data, how one of the biggest barriers to belonging is fitting in, and how I always thought for years that they were the same, but that fitting in is assessing a situation, figuring out who we're we're supposed to be, what we're supposed to be, how we're supposed to be, what we're supposed to say, and acclimating. Belonging is going into a situation and doing the bravest thing we'll ever do in our lives, and that's letting ourselves be seen. Mm -hmm. And so I think with my daughter, I think it's our job as parents to first and foremost make sure that our children feel a sense of belonging at home. Because I cannot tell you, I just did, I guess it was last year, I did a big focus group with about 30 middle school kids. And it was all about the difference between fitting and belonging. I wanted to know in their language, what did you think? What do you think the difference is between fitting in and belonging? Do you think they're the same? And the thing that bubbled up from this conversation that has since been really confirmed by many other interviews is, you know, and they always call when you come in from to a school, they always call you miss. They're like, Miss, it's really hard to not belong at school, but nothing is more painful than not belonging at home. hmm and so I think we have to start by making sure our kids feel a sense of belonging at home, that no one belongs in this family more than you, mm-hmm. that we see you, we know who you are, and you belong. And I think if we can get our kids that, then we can help them cultivate belonging in the outside world, at school, in our faith communities, in our you know, sports activities. And, you know, and I don't care. Here's where we run into problems. My kid, you know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, let's say I'm someone who is really influenced by the idea of being cool. Like, mm-hmm. I think cool is super important. Hipster, I'm a hipster mom. And as it turns out, this great child that I'm raising, you know, <laughs> where they might really feel a sense of belonging, where they can be seen and be themselves, is the Klingon club at school, mm-hmm. where all the Star Wars groupies hang out, and they, you know, translate Harry Potter and the Klingon language. And, you know, that, and then this is how kids end up struggling. And I say, You're to join what? Jesus, we used to beat up those kids. Mm-hmm. Why don't you play soccer like your older sister? Mm-hmm. Or lacrosse? Or, you know, you know, try something a little cooler than like the Klingon club. You know, that's where we get into trouble. We have to find, help our kids find what they love and what they're drawn to. And it's okay if it's goofy because goofy belonging is still belonging.
1: Mhm. Does that make sense? No, that makes that makes total sense. It's not about um it's about loving them in they can be different from us.
0: Yeah, and that's hard because especially if as parents we don't know who we are. we mm-hmm. We're still the kid that didn't make the football team. Mhm.
1: And so how do we go about, because that is, I mean, we've, I've been talking a lot about that comment of, you know, loving ourselves until we can love ourselves more. We can't love other people. We can only love ourselves. other people as much as we love ourselves. And how do we go about loving ourselves more that's authentic?
0: Did you just... Every super hard question. <laughs> and just, these are big questions, and they're, they're my favorite questions, but these are hard questions. I mean, the high idea of how do we love ourselves more. You know, this is where I get into the research that led me into all of this work. I don't think we can get to a place of real self-acceptance and self-love until we do some of the harder work and, you know, the shame work. If we, I think we have to start by... Really understanding what it is that keeps us from believing that we are enough. You know, here's the thing. When I started the wholehearted research, if I crudely divided... I have about eleven thousand stories or pieces of data. We call them incident data, incidents or data. Um, If I crudely divided people into two categories: people who felt a strong sense of love and belonging, like I am, I am lovable, I I belong, and people who really struggled for love and belonging there would be only one variable that separated those two groups. And that is simply that the people who carry a deep sense of love and belonging within them believe that they are worthy of love and belonging. Mm-hmm. They weren't thinner, richer, more beautiful. They didn't have less trauma in their lives. They didn't have more, less, you know, bankruptcies or divorces or addiction. They just believed that they were worthy of love and belonging and the thing about worthiness and the thing about believing that we are worthy is that worthiness doesn't have prerequisites it's not like you know and that's what most of us do most mm-hmm. of us have these prerequisites whether they're conscious or not conscious that okay, well, I get that I should be worthy of love and belonging. I kind of am. You know, I would definitely be worthy of love and belonging if I could lose 20 pounds, if I made partner, if I stayed sober, Mm -hmm. if my mom loved my husband, if my husband came back, if my wife didn't leave, if my kid gets into Stanford. You know, we have, uh, if no one finds out that I was abused, if no one finds out I'm HIV positive, if no one finds out that i struggled go to college if no one finds out i don't have a college degree um, if no one finds out my dad's in prison you know it's like you know i'm telling these stories and they're not, they, you know they are our stories everybody's got a story that will break your heart i mean this is the deal like you know that's it mm-hmm. and so we have this list of prerequisites for worthiness and if we really want to get to a place of believing And, you know, and, and really believing that we're worthy, living like we're worthy, we will spend less time trying to check those things off and more time really trying to understand where does this list come from and how can I let the list go? How can I say, you know what, I, you know, I'm not perfect with this list of things. I'm going to let them go and I'm going to, and maybe there are things on this list that I do want to change about myself. But I'm not going to put my lovability and my deserving of belonging, I'm not going to put that, they're not going to hinge on this. I'm going to start from a place of love and belonging that I'm worthy now as is. And then what we know from every field of research, qualitative and quantitative, is that the likelihood of being able to make it through a divorce, get sober, put together a relationship, get healthy, is much greater if we start from the place of, I'm worthy of love and belonging, then if we try to hook into this idea of, if I can accomplish this, I will be. And so if we want to love ourselves more for ourselves, and so that we can give more love to other people, we start by examining that prerequisite list. S-
1: so that And we key- all have it. That, well, that key thought of, I'm worthy of love and belonging, is that something that we all have when we're born?
0: You know
1: what? I think it is. And is that something that as we go through life, you know, um, I call it society beating us down or whatever. or Yeah, yeah, no, us, yeah, perfect. That we, we tend to lose that because we go, oh, well, we have to do it this way if we want to be liked. Or, we, you know, we watch and we go, well, maybe this is what will work better. And we, right. we start to lose that worthiness of love and belonging.
0: Yeah, here's the big... Um, I don't know if you've seen the TED Talk or not, but here's mm-hmm. something that I say in that TED Talk that I think has been really life-changing for me, for my husband as a pediatrician. Um, we kind of get it backwards from the very beginning as parents. Like, I think what happens is it's, we hold these newborns in our hands and we say, you're perfect. And... It's my job to keep you perfect, and it's my job to make sure that everything falls out in front of you, that everything that falls out in front of you is perfect, and so we try to do that, and it wrecks us because what the mandate really is, what the manifesto should be for the new parent is I'm going to hold this child in my hand and say, you are absolutely already imperfect. You're you, are, you know, you're hardwired, and it's true. We know this already from neurobiology. You are already hardwired for some struggle because you come from us and we're imperfect. And life is going to be messy and imperfect. And my only job is to make sure you know that no matter how imperfect you get or things get around you, that you are always worthy of love and belonging.
1: Oh, I just got chills. I'm sorry? I just got chills when you said that.
0: Yeah, it's a completely different... Approach, mm-hmm.
1: you know what I mean? No, I, I, and because, I, and with working with parents so often, I see that parents we don't want—they don't want the struggle for their child. And, um, and what I do know about life, the little that I do know is that going through those struggles can help us heal, and that and that its good to have them. Not that we really want them, but um, you know, when I think about Viktor Frankl's *Man's Search for Meaning*. <sighs> Right. Yeah. One of the ways to search for meaning is by going through struggle. Another is loving relationship and the other is being of service. And and I think that helps parents kind of just get some anxiety like, oh, it's, it's OK. that They struggle because we go, oh, I had this horrible seventh grade experience and I don't want my child to have it. And then they get really angst around everything that happens in seventh grade. And their kid still has that horrible seventh grade experience. And but they don't have that safe place to be because they're like, oh, why is why? Why is there something wrong with me? too right yeah.
0: right and now i can't tell mom and dad because mom and dad were so hell-bent on me not having it mm-hmm. you know and kids pick up on that stuff and I-, I think you're absolutely right i think you know what i believe is that i love c.r schneider's um, research on hope. Like we used to think that hope was an affect or an emotion, like it was a, an emotion, a feeling of positivity and possibility. That's what we all thought in our field for a long time. Schneider spent 20 years really researching hope and he, along with another independent, working independently of Schneider, came to the conclusion that hope is not at all an emotion. That it's a cognitive process. It's a way of thinking that is taught or learned primarily through parenting, and that there are three pieces that kind of have to be present for children to grow up to be hope- high, have high levels of hopefulness, which I think every parent in the world wants to raise a child who has a sense of hopefulness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and one of them is tenacity and perseverance and the, the ability to plan be it, the ability to experience adversity and failure, and still be willing to move forward and find alternative ways of achieving what it is that they want to achieve. And so when we deny our children the opportunity to experience disappointment, failure, setbacks, we strip them of the ability to be hopeful, to cultivate hope in their lives. And I have to tell you, honestly, as a college professor, I've been teaching for 14 years. Um, This has changed dramatically in my tenure. (laughs) How so? A lot of the young people today just freak out if things don't go exactly (laughs) how they want them to go the very first time. Mm Mm-hmm. I'll tell you. I'll tell you one of the things that I'll tell you an indicator of how, how crazy it is. We have to take mandatory trainings as, as you know as faculty that remind us that we're not allowed to talk to parents. <laughs> and I I only teach. I've only for the last twelve years. I've only taught masters and doctoral students. I teach in a graduate program, so we only have graduate students. And every semester, I have parents who call
1: in graduate school. Oh yeah. Oh, my gosh.
0: Yeah. With either how dare you give her a B or what can she be doing to get better grades? I mean, you know, my daughter in junior school, we have a, a, a school-wide system right now where we get their homework assignments before they do via email, and we can set text messaging to go off if their grades fall below a 95 average. Wow. That crap does not exist when your kids get to college. Like, it, you don't get to rewrite a paper in my class until it's an A. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to text you with your GPA. hmm You know, and so kids don't know how to get a C. They don't, know how, they don't know how to fail. And when you don't know how to fail and you fail, you go straight to shame. Not I screwed up, not shoot, I should have studied, not what was I thinking. You go straight to I am bad. I am not enough.
1: So um, in my past life, I was a, a community college professor, and, um, and I, haven't seen, I hadn't seen the helicopter parents, but it could also have been the demographics of my, of my college. Um, but I also coached swimming, and I know you swim, and you just mentioned your daughter swim. So yes. And just last night, I coach my I coach a youth swim team, and my both my daughters, I coach them, and uh, we do this thing called thumbs up, thumbs down. And I don't know if you're familiar with Daniel Coyle's uh, book, The Talent Code, and and the the brain research, but we do a lot of engaged learning, and it's very interesting because I've been doing this thumbs up, thumbs down now for 20 years, where they do a we're working on flip turns, and they do a skill, and I I'm asking for a very concrete thing for them to do, and if they do it, they get a thumb up, and if they don't do it, it's a thumb down, and we do so many until we're done or we get to get out of practice. And it was interesting watching the kids because and it was interesting with the parents because some of the parents had a hard time watching their children get thumbs down. But what started to happen is as this was going on, and we did this for about 30 minutes, we did them in groups of five. What started to happen is this one child got quite a few thumbs down and, um, and she was there longer and she was working on it and stuff and then she started to get it. And then later when we came back to doing thumbs up again, um, she wasn't so bothered by the thumbs down because she knew that she could accomplish this that even though she got thumbs down in the previous time, she eventually got her five she had earned herself her five thumbs up and was able to move forward and um, and so and I just I feel like that's such a good thing for kids to learn and it was interesting because my nine year old last night was a little upset that I had given her the all these thumbs down and and we talked about it and I said, well, you know there were things that you had not gotten done that you're capable of doing and you eventually got your five thumbs up and and she even understood that one of the um, uh, better swimmers on the team last summer had gotten a tremendous amount of thumbs downs from my husband when he was coaching her and that was also one of the things that led her to being you know the high point winner on the swim team and um, so my daughter even though she intellectually understood it she didn't like having to deal with it but I also think it's so important for them to I believe it's important for them to in their eyes you know struggle or fail. And to know that, hey, I can struggle and fail, but I'm still liked. And, hey, I can learn the skill. And look, as one of the kids, she was so cute. She was really struggling with the flip turns. And then when she finally got it and mastered it, she threw her fist in there. And she's a really quiet kid. She threw her fist in there and was like, yes! But she <laughs> love that. <laughs> and the, we just, the parents and I, we were so excited. But it was, it was so cool because she owned it right and that just gave her more self-confidence that when i was challenging her and it was at her appropriate ability level i mean these kids were like between the ages of seven and nine so they are not older kids and it was a very specific skill set but i so believe in what you're talking about with the struggle and when you talk about when we deny our children that opportunity to you know face that struggle it's like we want to clean up the mess i mean that's a natural instinct because it's so painful and i'm always like with the parents i'm like just trust me just trust me this will help them you know I mean,
0: I just think that is the most beautiful, important story. So let me tell you how, in terms of couching this in terms of the hope research, how what you did teaches hopefulness. There's three components of hopefulness. There's um, goal, pathway, and agency. Is there an explicit goal? Pathway, a hopeful person will have an explicit goal a hopeful person will believe in pathway they you know will ha- understand that there is, there is an actual way to achieve this goal and an agency is i believe i can do it i know that if i keep trying even if i fail that this is possible so when so just in a half hour 20 minute 20 flip turn process someone goes from thumbs down to thumbs up all three of those pieces of hope are hit square on the head.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like it is—that is important. Do you know how many kids today never ever get to go from thumbs down to thumbs up because no one is willing to start with thumbs down? Mm-hmm. So what their experience is: no matter how bad their flip turn sucks, they're getting thumbs up, thumbs up, thumbs up and then they're going to get into junior high. Thumbs up, thumbs up, thumbs up. Flip term still sucks. Thumbs up, thumbs up through high school. Thumbs up, thumbs up through the inflated grades of college. Then they get a job. Mm-hmm. And then they turn in something, and someone goes, what is this? And they're 23, and they're living on their own, and their entire self-worth is wrapped in the idea that I I deserve love and belonging, because I've never had a thumbs-down, and then they get a Mm thumbs-down. And this is what I see every single day. So what does this mean for them? Their first thumbs-down, 23. This means I'm in shame, I'm small, I'm not enough, I'm not worthy of love and belonging, anything less than perfect makes me less than lovable, and I can't change it. Because you know why? I'm, I'm, I'm in my 20s, and I've never seen I've never been. I've, I have no experience
1: of ever getting a thumb down to a thumb up. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. No. So yeah, and, and that makes so much sense. And and then that's when you when you talk about again, shame has love secrecy, right? So then you are like, yeah. oh, I've got to I've got to cover this up because I can't let other people know, and and shame right. just grows.
0: Right, so then you get, you know, so you get back a work product when you're 23 at your first job. You put together a proposal for something, that's your job, and somebody comes back and says, no, thumbs down, and you go, that was Mary's fault. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: You don't know how to accept feedback. You don't know how to give feedback. You don't know how to be wrong. You don't know how to make amends. You don't know how to fix it. You don't know how to plan B it. You don't know how, you know, you don't have, you have no experience with tenacity, perseverance. Perseverance. Um, it's, the, the, the the situation's pretty complicated. I mean, it's, it's the, one of the things I do a lot, accidentally, I never set out to speak to corporations, I speak to corporations all the time about vulnerability and innovation and creativity. I mean, I just spoke at Stanford in their MBA program about this very thing, because without having experienced some failure, some thumbs down, um, we get so afraid to try anything new that we quash all hopes of being innovative.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, innovators fail. Mm-hmm. Right?
1: Yep. But that's such a hard concept to really, <laughs> I mean, you, it's a hard concept to implement because it's, you know, when you grow up wanting to be, I mean, our world is set up. You need to get great grades. You have to get straight A's you know and i live in a university town university of california davis and the kids are set up look you have to be exceptional beings to be at this in this campus you have to work hard you you know you can't mess up you mess up you're out you mess up you're not going to be able to get that job and that's the message that the kids get day in and day out day in and day out and so how you know my big thing that i tell parents and when i go and speak i'm like let your kids suck it's okay if they can suck and you can still love them and go, okay, what can we learn from this and move forward? You know? And that is just, it throws their heads because there's so many PhDs and you know, right. all these other degrees in this town.
0: Yeah, and I have to be honest with you. I really think you know, when people, you know, when I do parenting talks, everyone says, what's wrong with our kids today? What the hell's going on? You know, and my first response is always, okay, take a deep breath. Let it go then look left and look right, <laughs> which, you know, never, never really quite goes over that well. But, um, you know, the thing is, we have to be okay. Mm-hmm. It's, we're not doing this for our kids. Let's get, you know, let's get totally 12-step on this, you know. We're, you know, sometimes enabling and doing those kind of things is strictly about our own comfort and our own safety. You know, a lot of times we want our kids to win the races and get the prize and be the best because it reflects on us. And this goes back, again, to right where you opened the conversation, Mm -hmm. which was such a really brilliant move on your part to open it there because it just always comes back there. We can't love our kids more than we love ourselves. We can't let our kids be any more imperfect than we're willing to be. We can't let our kids experience sucking any more than we have the capacity to hold space for sucking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'll give you. We'll run with the swimming thing for a minute because this, this was a very powerful recent experience for us. Um, Ellen came home and said, "He's got me swimming 100 breaststroke," and she just is not. She's a backstroker. And free, she's free. She does not. She just hasn't gotten that rhythm down yet at breaststroke. And she said, "I can't do it." And she said, "Can you talk to him?" And I said, "You know, can't." We really, if you want to talk to your coach about not swimming the breast, breaststroke at the meet, you need to talk to your, you know, talk, talk to your coach. And she said, and she's pretty shy. And she's like, you know, I will do it then. I don't even care how, how uncomfortable I am. I'm not doing it. And she said, I said, okay. She comes in from practice crying. He said, I need to swim it. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay. And she goes, what are my options? Can I quit? You know, can I quit swimming?
1: Oh.
0: You know, and I said, no. And she said, mom, let me explain to you how bad I am. I am so bad that they will be getting out of the water while I probably still have 25 yards to swim. And I said, that's, you know, that's hard. And she said, and this is a meet where we're not camping outside, all the swimmers are inside the auditorium. blah, blah, blah. And I was like, God. you know, and so what's happening for me inside, truth, you know, total truth telling, is I'm thinking we're going to get her out of this event. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be standing there while she is in the pool and has 50 yards to go and kids are getting out. Mm-hmm. Like, that's just ridiculous. And so I look up at my husband, and he's like, she's got a swim. <laughs> and, so, um, and so that's good because, you know, I need that balance. Mm-hmm. And I said, what if your goal is not to win the race or even finish with the other folks, even finish within the same 15 yards of the other folks? What if your goal, what if winning for you on Saturday is showing up and getting in the pool and swimming this race? That's Mm -hmm. winning for you. She goes, I don't understand. I said, what if if just showing up means you've won something? Mm -hmm. And she said, well, is everyone going to know that's winning? And I said, no, just you and me and your dad. And she said, so for me to win this race for me, I just have to show up and get in the water and swim this race. And I said, yeah. Because sometimes Ellen, showing up is winning. And she said, okay, I'll, I'll do it. And I swear to God, I thought I was going to die. <laughs> I did. And when she had about 40 yards to go, every other kid in that heat was out of the pool.
1: Uh-huh.
0: She finished it. She got out of the pool. Her dad and I were cheering. Her coach was cheering. Um, she walked over. She kind of had tears in her eyes, and she said, "Well, I did it." And I said, "You did it." And that was braver than winning the race.
1: Yep. Yep.
0: And I think she got it. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I I needed that lesson, and I need that lesson probably more in my life than she does. Mm-hmm. Because at 45 and having, you know, had some, you know, some professional success, I have recently gotten to the place in my life where I don't do anything that I'm not already really good at. Mm-hmm. And so it was a huge lesson for me that day that I need to start doing stuff that I really want to do where I need to risk the thumbs down and I need to risk This idea that I can be there and just showing up is enough. Mm -hmm. But it's our tolerance for that that dictates whether our kids will get that experience or not. And to be honest with you, had Steve not, you know, heavy-handed co-parented to this, (laughs) (laughs) I would have maybe chickened out. Mm -hmm. And you know what it's like to still be in the water when everyone's getting out.
1: No, I do. I mean, that was me with Butterfly when I was 10 years old. And I remember stopping and crying and choking on water and thinking I hated Butterfly. And we have this saying on our team. I learned this from one of my wise old mentors, but uh, you can't hate something that can't hate you back. But uh, um, so the kids pretty much know that when they say stuff. But I and I hated Butterfly. I mean, I just hated it. And but our rule was always you had to stone everything. Right. You know, and one of the things that had I not continued swimming butterfly, I never would have been a national champion in college in the two hundred butterfly.
0: And You're kidding? Me. <laughs> no, I'm not.
1: So you know, I, I mean, I would have loved to have been your daughter's coach because it would have been like, well, that's okay, you know. And and I tell I and I wind up coaching a lot of parents too because nobody wants their child to suck. They never want their child to be embarrassed, and so we talk a lot about best times. It's not about beating somebody or winning somebody because we can't control what other people do in other lanes. All we can focus on is what we do. And that's why I think swimming's such an incredible life. It's I, I, I coach swimming because I taught I teach about life. But um so there's so many empowering lessons. But yeah, I've had so many kids who were, you know, I really like the Puds to Studs stories because I've had so many kids who were horrible swimmers when they were young and they became um world-class. I have this one kid who used to cry every summer, every morning in the summertime because it was cold. And his mom just said, we're swimming. You need to, you need to know how to swim and we're swim. And then years later, moved back to Australia. And he was like one of the top swimmers in the country in Australia, you know? And, and I mean, he was a horrible swimmer when he swam for me. So it wasn't, it wasn't my coaching, but, and my husband's had many um, athletes like that. When you talk about tenacity, he coached somebody who made the 2004 Olympic team and Um, She was somebody we knew when she was a young teenager and she was pretty good, but she wasn't, my husband had better athletes than her, but she's the one that made the Olympic team in 2004. So that tenacity, you know, and that hope was just very important in her, in her journey. So, yeah, so I'm a big believer of all that.
0: Me too. And I think, again, we can't give anyone in our lives what we don't have.
1: Mm Well. And so, Brené, don't you think though? Also, because I know with me and my own journey, whether it's the athletes that I'm, I coach and I've learned so much from, the parents that I see struggle, and that I'm, you know, I feel privileged to be able to work with, or you know, my coaching clients that I work with, but also just having my children, I think that you know, when Viktor Frankl says, you know, you get meaning from loving relationship, and, and when you talk about you can only love others as much as you love yourself, I mean. I don't even think that concept came about until I had children. Like, just even being able to realize, like, my children have taught me so much about happiness and about love and about wanting to connect. So had I not had those experiences and then try to go, well, who is it that I want to be? You know, and, oh, I don't really like that person that I am today. What is it that I want to (laughs) be?
0: No, I I think that, and I think that mirrors my experience exactly. Mm -hmm. I do. I think... And I think there are a lot of people who don't have children who maybe find that with partners or with friends or close family members. I don't think you have to have children mm-hmm. to do that. But I certainly think for me, um, you know, it started when I was pregnant with my first child. And all of a sudden, I wouldn't do the things to my body that I would do before I was pregnant.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Healthy fruit, no caffeine. You know?
1: uh-huh.
0: Um It's, I think, I do think that we can learn about who we want to be from our children. But I think if we're not actively working on self-love, I think that can get very dangerous. Mm -hmm. I think really giving our, I think really examining that worthiness list, that prerequisite list, Mm -hmm. and understanding that tells us a lot about who we are and what's getting in our way. What are the shame triggers? What are, what, you know, and it tells us a lot about some of the prerequisites of worthiness that we got handed down as children mm-hmm. that we might be handing down. I mean, there's no doubt. I have, never been a cho- I have never been a parent and not been a shame researcher, and there is no question that I have explicitly and implicitly handed down prerequisites for worthiness for my kids
1: mm-hmm.
0: just in my behavior's.
1: Hmm. I know it's a hard road, isn't it?
0: <laughs> yes. I mean, I just have to, you know, and I'm not going to do it perfectly, but I'm certainly trying to stay mindful of it.
1: But I think that's again the gift of imperfection is that we that's aren't going to do it perfectly. No. And So let go of that so that we can go. Hey, I really messed up. You know. And um, a couple weeks ago, my daughter, it was it happened to be the day I was interviewing Ashley Merriman, the nurture shock co author. Yeah. And um, my daughter, I'm, I don't really cook. And part of it's because of my my need for perfection. But um, so I just decided I'm just not going to do it. But I don't even like to cook. But my daughter, my 10-year-old or now 11-year-old daughter, loves to cook. And she woke up. She was like, Mom, tell me what the ingredients are so I can make you coffee. And I was like, sure. And so all of a sudden, and I'm at the computer sending out emails. And all of a sudden I hear this, um, Mom, <laughs> oh, God. I, I put the coffee grinds where the water goes in the coffee <laughs> maker. <laughs> I'm like, okay, we'll just you know, hose it out. And um, and she kind of did it. She's like, well, I think I need some help. So I go over there and I just hose it out. And and I'm thinking, gosh, I could have just... And then, oh, no, then I'm just done. And I go, here you go. And, and so I go back to the computer and I'm on the email. And then I hear this, um, mom, I just did it again. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know that feeling.
1: <laughs> so I'm like, okay. So I hose it out. And then I'm like, I could have just made this faster. And I was thinking that, but I didn't say anything. I zipped it. And then I realized... It, within the morning, I realized, oh my gosh, had this been my experience, I was the child, I would have been shamed, you know, and I would have been berated. And even though that's my conditioning, because of the work that I do on myself, I was able to change it for my daughter. And that was huge. And that's what I think you're talking about with all the work that you talk about and how we learn to love ourselves and how to have compassion with ourselves. And then the spillover that happens to those that are around us. Tell me where I'm wrong.
0: No, you're not. That's it. You nailed it. That's it. That's exactly right. And it works the other way. It works that, okay, I'm going to work really hard not to berate or shame my kids. I'm going to work really hard to separate my kids from their behaviors. You know, you're not a stupid girl. You're a great kid. That was a really bad choice. I'm going to work, work, work to not shame or berate my, my, my children.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But then... You know, I tell Ellen, hey, your body's beautiful. You know, she's in this very self-conscious body age, right, 11. Mm-hmm. Your body's beautiful. You know, you're beautiful. Um, but then she walks in the bedroom, and I'm going, Jesus, I'm so sad. Look at these legs. It's disgusting. Our shame, the way shame leaks from us and the way we treat ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, here's the bottom line of the parenting research from, from my work. Who we are. On our own journey for worthiness, our own journey to believe that we are worthy of love and belonging, is a far better predictor of how our kids will do than what we know about the mechanics of parenting.
1: Wow. Oh, I believe that.
0: I've never, ever, ever interviewed an adult who said, you know, I think I feel good about who I am and I think I believe that I'm enough because my mom and dad knew exactly how many minutes to keep me in timeout. (laughs) They got me off the bottle right at 1, I had organic milk, and I went to the right camp. Never heard it.
1: No, parents, I mean, our children learn from us and it's not what we say, but it's what we do.
0: And it's how we treat ourselves.
1: Yeah. That's exactly it. All right, Brené, we're running out of time. So okay. do you have a couple of takeaways for my listeners on what they can practice? Just a couple things that they can just, and I love in your book, how you continue to call it practice. Cause either being the swim coach or the life coach, right? I'm continuing saying it's a practice. We don't learn how to swim in six hours, you know, and I can't tell you that you're going to learn how to swim in six hours cause I'd be lying to you. And, and with my weight loss clients, I'm like, okay, we just practice. We practice. You all know, move more, eat less, and you'll lose weight. But we practice because your stuff comes up, and that's when you practice. So I love how you yeah. talk about practice.
0: Yeah, I, I was so bummed to find out that everything was a practice. I was like, you know, for me, can it just be like an intellectual feat, and then once you know, you can check it out the list? Like, no. Um, I think for me, the big takeaway is, I know it's hard to look, you know, I know if you're listening to this interview and you're thinking, what does that mean, my prerequisite list? I know that it could be very daunting to think I have to sit down or she wants me to sit down and write down the things that I think get in the way of me feeling like I'm enough. And I don't want to do that because that will give these things so much power. But it doesn't. What it does is when we get really clear on, man, what is the crap getting in the way of me believing like I'm enough, that I am worthy of love and belonging, what are these triggers? Is it my weight? Is it my work? Is it how much I provide for my family? You know, is it, what is it? Is it, you know, what is it that's getting in the way? When we write them down and understand them, we give ourselves power. And we absolutely take power away from those things. Because whether we know them or not, they still control the way we feel, behave, and think every single day. So to know them can do only one thing, and that is to move them into the light so we can figure out what's getting in the way of me really cultivating and practicing self-love. hmm what are the, what's the mythology that I think I, what do I think I have to be? And where did that stuff come from? And I think, you know, I think it's vulnerable work. Mm-hmm. But I also think, and, I, and, and trust me, as someone who's not crazy about vulnerability, <laughs> if I thought that you could get away, you know, that we could all get away with not looking at these things, I would, I would I would be writing the life hack to do it. I'd make an app for it. <laughs> um, but there's not we just ha- it's like the flip turn practice you mm-hmm. just got to get in the water and get up against the wall 400 times
1: mm-hmm. exactly well Brandon,, so i
0: think practice i think in terms of practice practice being mindful about when you're feeling small or you feel like you've just made someone you love feel small what's going on
1: mm, that's a good one well, Brene, I want to thank you so much for being a guest today. It's been great to have you. Oh,
0: this was so fun. Thank you so much.
1: This is Karen Modokitis, and you've been listening to How She Really Does It. Brene Brown is the author of The Gifts of Imperfection. So that interview worked out, even with all the drama beforehand. We, we made it through, and then afterwards we spent quite a bit of time talking off the air and and just love Brene Brown. But one of the things that She thought I was doing when the mic was dead, in dead air. I was thinking she was judging me and thinking I was an idiot. But she just thought I was being really nice to her and giving her a couple of extra minutes to get herself organized. (laughs) However, my mic was off. So I had to go back later and re-record the introduction to the show. So that's what happens. You talk about letting go of perfection. I really had to live it on that show with Brene. And now I have something more for you. Are you ready to let go of the perfection that is strangling your life? I invite you to sign up for the Daring Way audio series to learn more about Brene's guideposts on my website at howshereallydoesit.com. And when you sign up, you will receive 10 audios that I've recorded of each of the guideposts from The Daring Way. Thanks so much for listening. On a
0: lake, she's dreaming. She is drifting, never been so wild.